You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Good morning. I'm Greg Arthur, one of the pastors here. And um, for the past two weeks, we've been looking at the passing on of our faith in Jesus, one generation to the next, parents to children, older to younger. In fact, that reminds me. (laughs) Boomer to millennial, millennial to Zoomer. This is such a crucial task that we have detoured here at Creekside to do this mini-series on this topic away from our usual way of going verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Uh, Last we went through through James and then Esther, and starting next week, we're going to go through Hebrews chapter 11, which is often referred to as the Faith Hall of Fame. So stay tuned. Anyway, this topic is so crucial that in the time I've been at Creekside, I've heard it four times, which works out to be every seven years. I've spoke twice. This is the second time I've spoke, but I've heard it four times. And why not? The faith that we have in Christ Jesus to save us is the prize of life. Why wouldn't we, above all else, want to pass it on to our precious children? For we live by faith in Christ Jesus to save us, who forgives all our sins, who heals all our diseases, who redeems our broken lives, who crowns us with his steadfast love and his mercy, and who satisfies us with good, who never leaves us nor forsakes us, who is with us and in us, who gives us wisdom without reproach, who is our God and we are his people, who gives us purpose and meaning and peace in Christ in this life and in the next All else is dying, all else is passing away, all else is in the end meaningless. All is vanity and grasping for the wind, as Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 3,000 years ago. All else except this gift of salvation received by faith in Christ to do what he has promised. This is the prize. Why wouldn't we want to pass on this prize to our children? All of us who are parents know that to the very depth of our being, we want what is good for our kids. That desire is so great that we have a hard time even putting it to words. But God in his word helps us put it into words. And so here is an ancient declaration of this deepest desire to pass on the faith to our kids. Psalm 78. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from the children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments. This is what we want to pass on. This is why we want to pass on our faith to the next generation so that they should set their hope in God, not in anything else. Parents, this is our aim. Children, we want nothing less. Okay. With that introduction, would you pray with me? My Lord Jesus, thank you so much for who you are. When you 
taught, you often said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. My Lord, help me say the words you want me to say, and help us have ears to hear what you're saying, and minds to understand what you're saying, and um, hearts to obey what you say. My Lord, I pray no one will be missing. I pray, Lord Jesus, that all will find and accept, take this faith in you, the salvation that comes by faith. May there be no one missing, my Lord. May the circle be unbroken. In your name we pray, amen. All right, there are challenges to this, yes. In this fallen world, it's no surprise that there are challenges to passing on the faith. We know because so many church kids walk away. The statistic is between 50 and 90%, depending on the survey and the denomination, of church kids leave the church after high school, and that about half of them come back sometime later in life. Now, this is just a statistic, and you may have heard Mark Twain's line that there are lies and damn lies and statistics, but the same studies also give the reason that being a church kid is not enough. Only faith can withstand this world. Only the real thing, the biblically grounded, gospel-centered, Christ-dependent, Holy Spirit-filled faith in God can withstand the atheism of college culture or inoculate the heart against the allures of the world or allow God to cancel out the guilt and the shame and the self-condemnation that arises from our own moral failures, the failures that we never thought were possible in us, the failures that we think disappoint God and that would cause him to turn away. For it's one thing to have heard it said that God loves you and will never turn away and quite another thing to entrust your life to this very singular fact about God. It's one thing to have heard it said, the biblical truths that God is the creator and ruler of all creation, that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, that the world has fallen that Jesus is our Savior who died for our sins and rose from the grave and that the Holy Spirit is with us and in us. It's one thing to hear those truths, and it's another thing to entrust your life to them, especially since the world around us says that only ridiculous fools and anti-science fanatics could possibly believe in fairy tales from a 3,000-year-old book. It's one thing to have heard that God saves us from sin and death, and another thing to entrust your life to God's free gift of salvation by faith, especially since all around us are people that are warmer and more impressive than our parents or our pastors who say things like God doesn't exist or God doesn't matter or that God isn't good. It's one thing to have heard it said that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and another, to entrust your life to his grace, to accept his forgiveness, to receive his spirit, and to be born again, especially since all around us are those who suppress the truth about sin in order to deny the need for God. So, what should we do to disciple the next generation, to pass down our faith in Christ Jesus so that they would set their hearts in God? Well, the first aspect of discipleship is from Deuteronomy, is being disciples of Christ ourselves, so that what we pass down is the real thing, the biblically grounded, gospel-centered, Christ-dependent, spirit-filled faith in God. The Bible says, these words shall be on your heart, so that it's our own love of God and his word that's on display. And then we have something to pass down. 
Then we're ready for the second aspect of discipleship, which is teaching diligently. When you sit in your house and when you walk in the way, foremost as parents, but also as this intergenerational church family that we are. But there's a third aspect of discipleship, is there not? Teaching's not just what we say or do or give. We must ourselves be disciples, that's true, and we must diligently teach both by instruction and by example, that's true, but for there to be discipleship, they also must listen. And there are reasons why people can or can't or will or won't listen. Plus, what sticks isn't content, it's impression. The poet Maya Angelou said, I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. In other words, what matters is how we say what we say. Not just what we say, but how we say what we say. So to this third aspect of discipleship, whether what we pass down is actually received, I'd like to ask that question again. What should we do to disciple the next generation? And to get to that, let's consider this verse. I think in your bulletin it says Psalm 23, 26. There's no such thing. Um, but it's Proverbs 23, 26. Oh, no, you got a faulty Bible. Proverbs 23, 26. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Is there nothing more plaintive than that? At first blush, it's a command or it seems like a command. Solomon says, my son, you, my son, give me your heart. But if you look closer at it, it's a command that cannot be commanded. Solomon cannot command his son or anyone for that matter to give away their heart. For it's the essence of humanity of being made in God's image that our loves are ours and ours alone to give away as freely as we choose. Solomon can't make his sons or daughters love him, and nor can we. So this verse can't really be a command to our daughters and sons. What it can be is a statement of really what we hope for, that you, my son, would give me your heart so that you might then let yourself observe my ways. And if that's the meaning, then really, it's an appeal to us to win their hearts, to outcompete the world for them, or more to the point, make it more possible on our side of the equation for them to give their hearts to us. So then, when we say to them, my daughter, my son, give me your heart, they reply, oh, dad, you know it. You already have it. That's the goal. So what can we do to win their hearts? First thing we can do is meet them where they are. Okay, when I was 15, I was 15 once, I wanted to see earth, wind, and fire in El Paso, the big city 50 miles away. So I asked my dad to take me because I couldn't drive yet. Now, he was a top military man who listened to jazz, really sophisticated jazz, and worked with generals and dignitaries. He was that guy. He was at work at seven, exactly two seconds, right? I figured he'd drop me off and then he'd pick me up later, but that's not what he did. He didn't just tolerate me. He didn't just go into why Miles Davis is better. He didn't hold on to his high standing in his world. Instead, he took me downtown to buy us matching disco shirts, <laughs> black with silver Eiffel Towers on them. And we wore them together to the greatest concert in the history of the El Paso County Coliseum. And with every drunk person we stepped over, 
And with every funky song that we heard, the great Paul Arthur validated me as being valuable to him. It's still one of the greatest experiences of my life. He met me where I was and won my heart forever. Now, Jesus did this all the time. He met people where they were and he won their hearts forever. For example, when Jesus passed through Jericho, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and he was unable, to do, unable due to the crowd because he was short in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree in order to see him because he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. The great king of kings, Jesus, whose fame is spreading throughout the world, met Zacchaeus right where he was. A little despised man in a little despised town in a big despised tree. Jesus met him in his world and called him by name and asked him to host his visit. Jesus didn't come to Jericho looking for chief priests or proconsuls. He did not call upon the Jericho equivalents of Oprah or Elon or Lebron or any of all those one-named elites who roam astride the whole earth. No, instead, in his greatness, he called out to Zacchaeus. And right there, by meeting him where he was, Jesus validated the despised tax collector as valuable to him. That's the secret sauce about meeting people where they are. It validates them as valuable. It honors them. And Zacchaeus' response was just pure joy. Jesus had won his heart forever simply by meeting him where he was, right in the middle of his messed up life up in a tree. And, you know, God commands us in the Scriptures to be like Jesus, who met humanity where we all are in this fallen world, in our messy lives, while we were yet still sinners. From Philippians, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held onto, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. That's what Jesus did. He gave up his position in heaven to meet us where we are. Okay, so for myself, I first took this all to heart when my son was little. When he was about three, he heard a Katie did making a zip, buzz zip sound in the, back, in the backyard. And with the conviction of a young man created to make the works of God manifest. And if you know him, this is absolutely true. He said he really wanted to see a Katie did. So I carried him under the tree with a flashlight, listening for the sound, searching for a Katie did. And Lori, my wife, later told me that she was praying the whole time. But to no avail, we did not find a Katie did. And when it was time for bed, he used to stand on this little stool to brush his teeth at the kitchen sink which over it has a small window to the side yard. And while there, while he's brushing his te teeth, what do you think he saw? The most beautiful, big, green Katie did on the outside of the glass, on display just right there so he could look at it to his heart's content and, never, and not scare it away. 
And he just stared at it and looked at it. And it sank in to me that if God would validate Noah's place in God's family by meeting him where he is, at the kitchen sink, hoping to see a Katie did, then I can do the same and validate my son's existence in our earthly family by meeting him wherever he is. And so from then on, I took an interest in bugs. You might not know this. I know a lot about bugs now. (laughs) If it had been NASCAR, I would have worked on cars. If it had been video games, I would have leveled up. (laughs) But instead, it was bugs and the natural world, and we spent countless happy hours together in lonely places over the years looking for bugs and birds and, from the Bible, creeping things that creep on the earth, all of them. It's biblical. It's biblical, for Paul wrote about all this, love does not insist on its own way. And I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I can say that it is one of the greatest pleasures in God, one of my greatest pleasures in God and his leadership in our family, that when Noah went off to college, he went off with an insect net in his hand and a birding scope in his backseat of his car. And in fact, today, he's not here. He's on vacation from his job. He's out visiting his birding friends in in the Midwest, and he's probably wearing his Jesus and bird shirt right now. (laughs) I'm so proud of that. That's awesome. We met him where he was, and he grew up to be himself. That's the thing. And walk with God. It's my experience, I think, that all young people crave this sort of adult attention and understanding for grown-ups to meet them where they are. All right, so the first thing that we might do to win the hearts of the next generation is meet them where they are, just like Jesus does to us. Okay, a second thing that might make it more possible to win their hearts is to treat them with gentleness. Let's look at how Jesus treated Zacchaeus. Jesus said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. When the people saw this, they all began to complain, saying, He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. But Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I am giving to the poor, and if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'm giving back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus was gentle with him. And by gentle, I mean self-restrained. Gentle means restrained strength. Jesus has all this power. Mentally, spiritually, physically, he could do anything, but he restrains it. He holds it back. That's what gentleness is. His self-restraint of his strength is obvious in even just how he speaks, what he said. And it's especially in what he didn't say as much as what he did say. Jesus did not crush him. Jesus did not make him feel rejected. He did not call him out saying, Zacchaeus, you corrupt fool, extorting money that's not yours. That would have been true, but he did not say that. And Jesus didn't tear him down with sarcasm, saying some witty little thing like, should have used the extortion money to give to the poor. He didn't say that. And Jesus didn't stop under the tree and begin a teaching session, saying to the crowd, verily, verily, I say unto you, the worst corruption is extortion. He who has ears to hear, let Zacchaeus him hear. He didn't do any of that. Jesus did not make hopeless judgments or shame him or criticize him. 
or send a pointed message his way or use his life as a teachable moment, Jesus did not make him feel rejected by neglecting him or comparing him to others or dismissing him with a wave of a hand or dealing harshly with him like we do often when we say crushing things like, I'm disappointed in you or you're an embarrassment or what's wrong with you. I've lived long enough to have seen an ocean of relationships shipwrecked because of yelling and harshness and grim disapproval. Jesus did none of that. Jesus only said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Jesus was gentle with him, restrained, affectionate, even though the crowd was not. And it is that gentleness that led Zacchaeus to respond with joyful repentance. It's with gentleness Jesus wins hearts forever. For kindness leads to repentance, as the Scriptures say. Jesus says of himself that he is gentle and lowly in heart. And if the king of kings goes about winning the hearts of the rebellious and the wayward in this life to himself through gentleness, then who are we to do it some other way? He knows it's far better to be drawn to what's right than to be driven to it. That affection produces willingness. That rejection produces rebellion. He knows a soft answer turns away wrath. He knows love is patient and kind. It is not irritable or resentful, keeping a record of wrongs. He knows how to give direction without rejection. He knows it's that rejection that provokes in the human heart that kind of deep anger that might be called exasperation or estrangement or bitterness. That's why the Scriptures warn fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And Jesus knows how crucial gentleness is in the winning hearts to him, that the Bible is filled with commands to us that say, be gentle and with all gentleness, and let your gentleness be made known to all. It's, it's even a fruit of the Spirit. It's that important. So a second thing that we might do in order to win the hearts of the next generation is to stop the yelling and being grim and instead treat them with gentleness. All right, a third thing. Those studies about losing half the generation of the next generation also pinpointed the necessity for a safe harbor where they can express their doubts and their troubles and their successes and their failures, and someone will fill that role. But in order to disciple the next generation, it should be us. It should be our, the parents in the church. Okay, when Noah was 14, after years of meeting him where he was and speaking to him with gentleness, it seemed that the content of everything I had to say was some sort of correction or direction or instruction, as if the only thing I noticed of importance in my son was immaturity. Now, I don't want him to stay immature, that's true, but it was like the only thing I was noticing. So that was the content of my speech, even if it was with a pleasant face and not saying it loud. And then one day I was praying to Jesus, my Lord, saying, this can't be right for you don't interact with me that way. And then he answered me so clearly as if someone was speaking right in the van where I was praying, and he said, all he needs is your approval. The rest I could fill in. Just like the approval and security under which I walk all of my days with my God, my son should have that same security from me. Not constant correction, but approval, both when he's a success and a failure. 
All he needs from me is my approval because life straightens out immaturity. God is the one who convicts of sin and leads us in the way that we should go. All he needs from me is my approval because only I can give him his Father's approval. And when I do, I confer my highest regard to him. I proclaim to the heavens that this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, turning that verse around. My approval of him makes it possible for him to not only give his heart to me, but one day to give his heart to God, who is his eternal father, for we're just caretakers. And if I'm a safe harbor where he will be accepted when he is a success or a failure, then it can sink in when God himself speaks to him and says, I Even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And come to me, all you who who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All right, so one father here once said that being his kid's safe harbor meant he had to be the epicenter of grace in the family. And that's a great word, epicenter of grace. One other father here, when his daughter called him from college to say how she had gotten herself into trouble, said to her before she could say anything, there's nothing you can say that would make me love you less. That's a safe harbor. So a third thing we might do in order to win the hearts of the next generation is to be their safe harbor, where they will know that they are accepted, whether a success or a failure. Finally, these ways to win their hearts are all calls to action. Do meet them where they are, Do treat them with gentleness. Do be their safe harbor. But the other side of the coin is a call to cease action, of which I think there is one call. Don't have a critical heart. And it's my observation from my own life already this long that I've lived that the heart of the matter for me to win hearts is me first being cured of my critical heart. Because it's the critical voice arising in me from my own unregenerated heart that makes me do things I insist on my own way or require your respect before giving mine or to harshly reprimand or to blow up over little things or to roam around like the eye of Mordor, always searching for something wrong or to stand at arm's length while withholding my approval of your successes and making sure you know my disappointment in your failures. That man had to be killed and reborn anew to be like Jesus. That man had to hear what God says in his word, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and take that to heart and internalize it and make that truth my own. That man had to become like Jesus, who sought out the rebellious and the wayward and went to the cross to die for them. That man had to have that critical heart taken out, like heart surgery. For who am I to walk this earth that's not mine with a critical heart? That man had first to hear God say to him, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Before that man could attempt to ask the same from his son or from anybody else, that man had to be one in heart in order to win hearts. All right, so how do we give our hearts to God? We begin by acknowledging what God has done for us. The gospel isn't about what we do for him, but what he has done for us. He delivered us from sin through his death on the cross. He rose from the dead, defeating death. He credited our little spark of imperfect faith as perfect righteousness. And he said, whoever hears my word and believes 
Him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from life to death. That's how he wins us first. So that when Jesus says to us, give me your heart, we reply, you already have it, my Lord and my Savior, my King and my God. All right, a final thought. Perhaps discipleship is an art, not a science. We're dealing with people made in God's image and not robots made in ours. We're involved in the very complicated business of the human heart, and maybe discipleship is as important as it is because it involves winning hearts first to us and then to God. Maybe discipleship is difficult because it involves winning hearts first. Diligent instruction and being worthy examples are not going to make disciples unless the next generation decides to listen. The rubber meets the road if we win their hearts. All right, perhaps the best marriage advice I ever received was be happy with her and thereby outcompete the world. For those, is it not true, those who are happy with us win our hearts? There are troubles, there's misunderstanding, there's conflict, but if I am happy at heart with her, then I will meet her where she is. Then I will treat her with gentleness. Then I will be her safe harbor where she wants to be, then I will kill and keep killing that critical old man. And perhaps the best discipleship about the best advice about discipleship of the next generation that we can hear from our beautiful Savior in this verse is to also be happy with them and thereby outcompete the world. And perhaps then they will let their eyes observe our ways. Perhaps then then the saving faith in Christ Jesus will pass down. May no one go missing. May no one fail to receive the great gift of salvation through faith in Christ Jesus our Lord passed down from one generation to the next. May no one wander away in college. May the circle be unbroken. All right, I'd like to end here. How do we move forward? Let me say that I know it can be discouraging to hear things to do and things we should have done, especially as our kids get older and move away. When I first heard these sermons... 21 years ago, it was music to my ears, all these great ways to raise our son in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. For I always knew that I didn't have, since I was first saved, I didn't have anything in myself to offer. But God knows what I need, and he will reveal it to me. I, I knew that he would speak to me from his word and answer me in the day of trouble. And more than anything, I wanted God to make me like him and be a worthy father to, to my son who wins his heart to me and then to God. But that sunny sentiment was when my son was little and most of parenting was ahead. Now today, today, the fourth time through these sermons, with my son grown and most of parenting behind me, there's another more wistful sentiment. For it can be disheartening to review our past and see our failures and imagine what effects we've had on the next generation. But this is not the point. Instead, it was my hope that each one of us would forget what lies behind and reach forward to what lies ahead and press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus and then today strive to win those hearts of those in the next generation around us. And the good news is we will not be the only ones involved in this discipleship and their story is not over. Ultimately, the next generation is not ours, but God's. Ultimately, God redeems both us and them.
ultimately, his word remains the final word. So, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from the children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise to tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Amen. Thank you. Thank you all for listening.